As I said earlier, we have the uh, privilege to hear from our brother, uh, Daniel Fender. Well, good morning. My kids, uh, last week, one of them said, uh, are we going to be able to go back to that church again? And I asked them, what church are you talking about? And they started describing it, and they were talking about the gathering church. They want to come back and, for a visit. And, and I can say with all the twists and turns of life that uh, um, since the Lord opened up the opportunity to serve at Southwest Hills, that one of the things that my wife and I have been praying for was for an opportunity to be able to come back and say goodbye to you all. And, uh, um, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity this morning, not so much just to say goodbye, but to, to share the word with you. And uh, I, I could say one of the beautiful things is a couple, two weeks ago, I think now, Right before my wife and I left to the other side of town, I connected with Matt for a moment just to say hello again and say goodbye. And uh, he suggested, what would happen if you, what would you think about coming back again? And we checked with, he checked with the, the leadership team here and they thought, well, that, we could permit that. Maybe we're stronger than that, I don't know. And then the, the leaders at, uh, at Southwest Hills, uh, we checked to see what they thought and they thought that could be a beautiful thing. God loves hemming together loose, uh, loose threads of our life and our soul to unite the body of Christ. Amen. And uh, I want you all to know I deeply love you guys. It's been so, so many, some of you I've known for lo- as long or longer than I've known my wife. And, uh, and, and many of you knew my wife and I when we were just engaged and getting ready to be married. And so it's a great privilege to be with you all this morning and uh, to look into the word. Um, I've got, I want to also just say one last thing about kind of a little welcome um, Pastor Joel Lundy and his wife Kathy are visiting with us this morning. He's from Southwest Hill, so reach out to them. They're right there. Raise your hand. Yes. So thank you guys for visiting also. Uh, much of what I want to, uh, to advise you in this morning and encourage you in this morning, um, I've been learning over the past few years, and uh, especially this, this last fall, I felt like the Lord was let, letting those lessons deepen. Um, I could say I was trying to learn them when I said goodbye as a pastor three years ago at, at the Gathering Church. Um, and I hope that um, as I share some, some bread that's been nourishing to my soul, um, I, I know there'll be some parts that might be overbaked, and there might be some parts that are underbaked, and the dough's still a little soft. And so if you just be patient with me as we get into an incredible psalm, um, there's so many lessons um, from God's Word, and I think that you'll see a little bit of why I chose to dig into this passage. Um, the past five years, I can, I can just say on the front end, have been some of the most trying and, and painful years of, of my life. And uh, whenever you walk through pain, it makes you draw near to Christ in a unique way. And uh, so I hope that uh, whether, however you've read Psalm 22, I hope that by God's grace you can see how, how grief and pain comes in waves and how Christ in some ways kept his head up from sinking and how he trusted God through many trials. Um, this psalm, you'll see, is like swelling waves. And I want to show you how Jesus got up from the depths and how he looked to the future that God had while he was surrounded by pain. And how is it that Jesus Christ did that? So I want to pray. I want to I want to pray about that and be thinking about it. how is it that we relate with God during those dark times. Uh, many of you um, know um, Oshawa Hawthorne. He's visiting this morning. He's up here. 
and uh, he, his, he, he lived in Hawaii. He's a church planner in Hawaii. He's a missionary on the east side of Portland. But uh, he has this incredibly funny shirt. I thought it was funny until I realized how serious it was. And this shirt says, the waves just keep coming. The waves just keep coming. Now, that's, that's a wonderfully comforting thought when you're on the beach watching the waves. But when you're a surfer and the waves just keep coming and you already have a mouthful of salt water, it's not nearly as comforting of a thought that the waves just keep coming. But in this psalm, uh, in Psalm 22, Jesus Christ is actually at the cross suffering, and, the, and he's in the middle of massive waves. He's not watching them from a distance. He's experiencing suffering firsthand. Um, so I'd like to ra- ride some of these waves of sorrows into this psalm until we see the glorious future that God has promised for us and, and, and learn a little something there. Um, are we struggling with the PowerPoint still? Are they, you're good to go. Okay, great. One of my kids um, once described, I want you to know that when it comes to pain, so many of us, um, no matter how old or young you are, there's things that this passage has to say to us. One of my kids um, in the last year talked about some of their friendships. And uh, they said that um, they'd been, they were describing a painful friendship that they had, and they described it like a broken cup. And they started getting poetic. They said it was like a teapot without any sugar in it anymore. Isn't that beautiful? It's also painful, right? And then, and then also described it as, a, as a, like their heart was a broken glass. Whenever you, whenever you and I face pain, we always start getting more poetic, no matter how young or old we are. And, and this psalm is an incredible example. When you're walking through painful seasons, it, it's, it gives you language and vocabulary to, to be able to speak about pain. Again, like I said, this last fall, I was walking through a trying time myself, and um, but it, pain always compares with pain. And it, sometimes your pain looks smaller when you compare it with someone who's really walking through trials. Um, so the same week that I was walking some very trying times, I had a dear friend and a brother who suddenly faced the pain of divorce. And it was incredibly trying. And it made me realize, you know what? Every one of us, every one of us, no matter how small or big we might consider our pain in comparison to somebody else, it, it's significant, and we need to pay attention to it. So Psalm 22 um, speaks to you, whether you're abundant, whether yeah, there are a lot of supplies or not very much, whether you're rich or poor. Um, so I want to look at how Psalm 22 uh, deals with pain. But one of the things about how it deals with pain is it's not just physical pain. If you read Psalm 22 and you hear the words of Christ, it's not just physical pain. It's, it's the emotional struggle of accusations that can come against our own souls. So uh, my wife and I had this tradition that we, we began quite a few years ago. And that was when, when our, son was, our first son was being born, uh, we read, were reading an, a, a biography. And uh, we just so happened to be reading Brother Yoon's biography called The Heavenly Man. He was a suffered in China and under the communist regime. And it's like reading the book of Acts. And as we read this, it puts suffering in a certain perspective. And he has this very unique chapter in, uh, in chapter 26 called A New Kind of Persecution, in which he, he described when he came to the West in, in 1997, when he came to the West, he faced accusations and, and trials that he had never faced before. And one of the things that he said, he said that false accusations and verbal attacks were at times more painful to face and overcome than the physical beatings and tortures he had experienced in prison in China. 
So one of the, I, I bring that up just to say this to you. You and I, when we think about Christ hanging at the cross and the torture, we might say, I don't know what that's like. But the reality is every one of us have tasted pain in all different ways. So what I want to a- answer is some of these questions right here. How do you deal with pain? How, more importantly, how, how, do, how did Jesus Christ deal with pain? And so to answer that, I want to look at this psalm in three ways. One, I want to begin by looking at Psalm 22 in the New Testament. So kind of looking at how is it used in the New Testament. Consider how this psalm um, is referred to. And then I want to look section by section through Psalm 22. I'm not going to go into great detail, but we're kind of look at some of the highs and the lows. The kind of the, the troughs and the crests of the waves that we see here. And then wrap up by quickly looking at some key principles for how Jesus Christ um, overcame pain. So with that, would you just, before we dig into this passage, would you join with me in prayer? Ask for God's help. Does that sound good? Lord, every one of us who are here this morning, and we, the, whether small or big, we have, it seems like, enough trials and pains for our own little life. And then we consider other people's struggles. It can start feeling overwhelming. And then when we look at you, Christ, here in this psalm, there's enough pain in this psalm that we can lose sight of really the whole last half of this psalm, the hopeful progress towards which God has this incredibly amazing future plan. Help us, Lord, to learn from you, to learn from you, Lord Jesus Christ, and to see, Lord, you at the cross and how you suffered and how you overcame suffering and how you set your heart and you, you fixed your eyes on joys that God would promise would one day come. I pray in your name that you'd help the gathering church and each one of us to press through pain to the incredible promise of the future that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need your help. I need your help. And we just totally depend on you. And we do pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Psalm 22 in the New Testament. Um, This entire psalm, I think, was on Christ's mind, not just one or two of the verses that are quoted in the New Testament. Here's here's a little why I believe that's the case. Um, One is that this psalm right here, it's an incredibly important psalm. It's the most quoted psalm, the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Twelve times Psalm 22 is referred to. So it's an important psalm in the New Testament. But then when you look at the cross, it is the most quoted passage at the cross. It's, the, it's in some ways you could call it a psalm of the cross. Christ's suffering, you know, a clearly promised. And what we see here in this psalm is, is happening to Christ in living picture at the cross. In many ways, it's, it's how Christ was thinking, how he was praying as he suffered and was crushed at the cross. Now, Christ, in, in the, at the cross, we know there's seven things that Jesus said when he was hanging at the cross. Seven things. And out of those seven sayings, there's only 41 words that are recorded. 41 words. In the English language, it's about 52 in translation. But in the original language, there's only 41 individual words that Christ spoke. And think of this, that two out of the seven sayings that Christ brought up at the cross refer to Psalm 22. Two out of seven. So I think it's clear that this psalm was on his mind as he's suffering and trying to suffer well. In, in Matthew and Mark, it records one question that was spoken at the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first verse he quotes and it's during the dark three hours as Christ hung at the cross. And it's bracketed, it's bracketed by two phrases. This phrase right here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even as he's crying, think about Christ, his experience here. Even as he's crying this to God, people misunderstood him. You remember what they said at the cross? 
They said, Eli, Eli, is, is he calling for Elijah? Is he call, and they misunderstood even what Jesus was referring to. Now, I hope by God's grace, being biblical Christians, that we won't be misguided and say, what in the world is Jesus referring to? Where is he going? What's he thinking about? Instead, we'll say, he, he's thinking on a particular psalm. Even as he can't speak the whole psalm, he's thinking on a particular psalm, Psalm 22. So in some ways, we can enter into what is Christ thinking as he suffered. Also, one of the, and the, the t- very last words that Jesus spoke at the cross, we see this in John 19, verse 30. It says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Last words of Jesus Christ at the cross. The very last words in Psalm 22 is where it says, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it or that it is finished. I think in some ways, the three hours of darkness at the cross, Christ began with a cry from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As his last breath, it is finished. Or that he has done it. There's another way to translate what Jesus says. He said so few things at the cross because he, we know that he could only say so many things at the cross. See, the cross, the cross was not just death by torture. It was death by suffocation. Jesus couldn't say much. Every, every breath as he struggled at the cross was a struggle, and every word was labor. So Jesus, Jesus used very few words of the cross, but these two quotes, I believe, were intended in some ways to bracket this psalm so that we could understand the mind of Christ when he suffered, so we can learn from him how to suffer well, so that we can, we can learn in our suffering how to follow Jesus and to follow him not just in action but in thought, in learning how to think when you're facing pain and suffering. So when, when, people, when people know the Bible, you can give a little quote, and, and you can narrow if you know it. I didn't know Matt was going to pull this off this morning. But clearly, some people know the Bible more better than I do, right? It's in Jeremiah. Well, you could give sometimes a little quote, and people can say, oh, that's from here. If you know the Bible, that happens. There's an example last year. There's a great movie, Dunkirk. If you remember this, if you got a chance to see it, World War II, and some of the historic background that went on, it, it's not, it wasn't referred to in the, in the movie itself, but you have 400,000 allied armies who are trying to get across the English Channel without a boat in sight, right? And they're all there. But one of the things that's stunning about the story is how literate the English world was, biblically, because there was just, they, they, spent, they sent one message. Again, the Germans are at their back. They're on the beach. In front of them is the English Channel. And they sent one message with three words. And it just said this. They just said, but if not. But if not. Now, the Germans get this message, right? And they're trying to understand. They're translating it. They're trying to So what do they mean by that? Is this a code? But if not. But when they received it in England, people who, who knew their King James Bible knew immediately what they were referring to. Three words, but if not. And they thought of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar who was attacking them and wanted to throw them in the fiery furnace. Remember what they said in Daniel 3, 16 through 18? This is what he says, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. 
If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, that was the phrase they were referring to, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The point is, no, even if we can't fight against Hitler and the armed forces that are against us, we will stand and we will not bow the knee. We will die, or God will save us. But if not. The message was cryptic for those who didn't have the context of the phrase, but if not, and much, and much was meant in very few words. And I believe that the same kind of communication is going on at the cross. It's subtle, but there is a specific quotation that's full of riches. That if we're willing to, to responsibly seek out and try to understand what is Jesus thinking here? then we, we can get into a, a gold mine of riches. So that's what I want to do with you for the rest of our time here this morning. I would like to work through, again, this, this Psalm 22, not going into great detail, but consider it as like a series of waves, deep troughs, incredible crests, and the bigger the waves, the bigger the storm, and you see some very highs and lows. There are in this passage, this image is kind of what we're going to look at through this passage, that there are, there are ways of thinking that God wants us to understand, but there are also in this psalm waves of thinking. There's deep places of despair and heights where you say, I'm going to still hope. So in many, in many ways, this psalm fleshes out that phrase we see in Hebrews 12 too, when he says that, that Christ suffered and he was the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. In many ways, this psalm doesn't just talk about the shame, but it gives some of the joy that was in Christ's mind that allowed him to press through the shame of the cross. So let's look at this. We're going to go really quickly through Psalm 22 because it's just so much here. Um, let's, let's consider how this is fleshed out. First two verses. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the, wor- from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I-, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. The predominant thought in Christ's mind is, is where is God? It's a deep trough. He's, he's struggling to breathe. Where is God? And then right after that, there's this, a, he just turns, a, he kind of gets to the top of the next wave, and he says, yet yeah, you're holy. E- even though it feels like you've forsaken me, yet you're holy, God. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. He looks back. He sees God's faithfulness in other people's lives. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and and, and they were rescued. In you, they trusted and, and they were not put to shame. So right after he says, where is God? Then he says, you know, God is holy. He's faithful. And he kind of reaches the crest of the wave, gets a breath of air. He says, oh, yet he's holy. He's, he's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful with me. But then right after, he sees God's faithfulness in other people's lives, and then look at what he goes. Then he, asks, then, he, then he considers who he is. But I'm a worm. I'm a worm and not a man. I've been scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, he, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And you just hear the mockery that Christ faced. Again, at the front end of this passage, he's experiencing accusations about whether God would even come or save. And that was more painful than what he mentions later on even. He says, this is what they're saying. And he really is asking the question, who am I? I feel like a worm and not even a human being. 
And he, he's struggling again to breathe. Who am I in light of all this? But then he crests the wave. Again, this is what the psalm does, right? Then he crests the wave and says, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. And he says loud and clear, you know what? God, God's cared for me since birth. I, I might right now be wondering, who am I? I feel despised and small. Yet he says, I, I'm going to look back and I see at one point in my past, God was faithful. Now look at how far back Jesus had to look. You might have had a very hard last 30 years. But Jesus, as he's spanning over the last 30 years plus of his life, he, has to, he goes all the way back to his infantile state. And he says, okay, God, this seems really terrible and this is overwhelming, but I remember when I was a baby, you cared for me. You might have to go back a couple years to see God's goodness, but you can still do it. You can still do it. Verse 9 through 11, in many ways, this is, this is Christ. As he's hanging and being crushed to the cross, he recalls Christmas. <laughs> He says, I remember there was a time where I was born and my mom cared for me. And I, uh, you could just imagine Christ thinking of the times where he was just a child. And he remembers and he recalls being a dependent creature on his mother. And I think in some ways it oriented his dependence upon his father also here. Being a baby informed his work at the cross. He said, God, I was once absolutely, totally dependent. I'm, I'm there again. I remember at one point you cared for me. Back in the past, you're going to do it again. I remember, God, that you've cared for me since birth. And I just want to say this. To those of you who are walking through trying or painful times, I want you to just grab hold of Jesus and all the situations that you face. And recognize this, that the, the word of God, the words of Christ give you something to say when you're walking through hardship. Some of you don't know what to say. Sometimes the struggles and doubts we have, we dare to put them into words, and yet Jesus dared to put them into words. And he did, and yet he held on to this reality. Even when he said, God, who am I? I feel like a worm. The next moment he's reaching for the truth. He says, yet you've cared for me. I remember how you cared for me. Do that if you're in a trough right now. Because right after he reaches this reality, you've cared for, you cared for me once when I was a child. Look what he says next. In many ways, it comes up with the question of how, how will I be saved? How can I be saved? And he says this in verse 12 through 18. Look at he's despairing again. He says, through, he says, many bowls have encompassed me. Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. These animals like attacking him. They open wide their mouths at me like a, a raving and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for do- dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now we see Christ's cross in some more of its colors. In some of the promises that you say loud and clear, yeah, this is Jesus. His hands are pierced. 
His feet are pierced. His clothing is taken and gambled for. And the predominant question in this trough is really, how will I be saved? How will I be saved? I mean, look at the situation. He looks at himself. He says, I'm weak. My strength is dried up. I have no strength left in me. I'm like a pot shard, just useless, a broken vessel. He says, I'm like water that's been poured out. He says, I'm incredibly weak. And then right after that, he says, look, and look around me. Look what's surrounding me. My enemies are strong. They're like strong bulls. They're like raving lions who want to destroy me. I'm surrounded by evildoers. They're like animal-like strength. I'm being crushed. And in some ways, it's that how in the world could I be saved of this situation? What can I do? And the intent of getting to this point of despair is actually to lift his eyes. Look what he does right after that, verse 19 through 21. He says, but you, O Lord... He crests the wave again, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Didn't he just say God had forsaken him? But here he says, God, don't be far away. Don't be far away. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Dogs were not a good thing in Israel, okay? So you're like, yeah, I like dogs. They did not like dogs, okay? They were not Portlanders. They were Hebrews. I am Hebrew-like in that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But here he's like, get rid of the dogs. I do not want dogs. He just save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And here he, he gets this point where he says, you know what? God alone will save. There's no other hope. God alone will save. And he, he crests the wave again. And he gets to this point. This is what the whole psalm goes. He's gasping for breath. He says, God, you alone can save. What I love about this passage is we can ask questions like, well, how is God going to do it? How is he going to save? Why is he doing all this? But one of the things is we're not told exactly how he's going to save, but we are told exactly who is going to save. We want to know the how piece far more than the who piece. But God actually, much of our life is to orient us around who's at work. Who's doing this to me? Who's, who's crushing me? In many ways, God, God desired his son to say, my only hope is in you, Lord, nobody else. That's what God loves to do in our lives also. To actually say, my only hope is God. To, to, to kind of drain our resources, tell our only hope, is in him until our hope and our confidence is not in answering the why question or even answering exactly how it's all going to work, but instead admitting, you know what? God is the Lord of the future and the Lord of my life. My friends, some of you right now are in the midst of, of suffering and, you're, and God the whole time is trying to teach you how to trust him and that God alone will save. No person, no situation, no, no powers in the world can save, God alone can. And, and, and as you face, as you, you want to know the future and you want to understand the plans that God has, but in many ways the whole time God wants you to know him. You're like, God, tell me what the plan is. And God's like, will you learn to trust me? Will you learn to look to me? Will you learn that I'm dependable even in dark times? A little over a, a, a year ago, I was at a low point, one of the low troughs of the wave. I was probably asking the question, who am I? I'm a worm and not a man, something like that, you know. That was, and I, obviously, Jesus experienced that far in more severe ways than I'd ever imagined. And yet, those are words I felt. And my, one of my daughters was given this incredible coloring book. And this is the quote 
they handed me this incredible coloring book with all these beautiful pictures. And this is the quote that they opened up to. Dad, look at this coloring book. And I'm meditating on Psalm 22, and they give me this quote from Corey Ten Boom. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Again, God does a lot of random things, doesn't he? It just so happens that's the page that's op- that the kids opened to show me this amazing coloring book. And I was struck by it. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. In many ways, that's exactly what Christ had to do. He had to say, I don't know exactly how all of this is going to work, but I trust you. I trust you. And this is what's stunning about this passage. The moment that Christ saw, the moment he said, God, you're my only hope, is the moment that we also see him seeing the future that God had planned. And I would like to encourage you, if, if, you, see God work, if you see God working in your life right now, that is a beautiful opportunity. But at this moment, you might be saying, you know what? I, I, all I know is that God alone can help. The moment you start seeing that is the moment you start seeing the future again. Instead of getting stuck in one of the, the troughs, you start reaching the shore. And that's exactly what happens here. There's an anticipation of the good future that God promised. Now, I wish that more of us would work on memorizing this last part of the psalm. Psalm 22, verse 22 through, through 31. It's incredible. Look at, what, look at how beautiful this is. I think Christ is thinking of this as he suffered. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's looking forward to the future. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. And here, you know, we think of Christ suffering with the hidden face of God. And yet here he says, I know in the long run you're not going to hide your face from me. And he says, but he, was, he has heard. And when he cried to him, and he's talking about Jesus the Son, when he, Jesus, cried to him, the Father, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. It's incredible. You think, wow, he just, got, he just got to some solid land to stand on. But he continues. He then looks at the future. He says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and will turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, or that it is finished. Now, I believe that this is some of the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. I don't think he just thought of the dark parts of this, of this psalm, but I think in many ways he thought of, of where this all was going. And he, he had his mind on the joy that was set before him. There's two big things we see in this and what Jesus was anticipating. One was the anticipating of leading the nations in worship. Even as he's being mocked by the nations, the Romans, the Jews... He's longing to lead the nations in worship. He says, they're going to worship someday, and it'll be sooner than they think. And three days later, he busts open that grave. 
he rises and he starts calling the nations to worship him. I mean, that's, that's a, that was a really low sink, but man, did he rise quick. It's incredible. And now millions, billions of people worship him. It's incredible. He anticipated the day of leading the nations in worship. And he also anticipated satisfying the afflicted with salvation. He, long, he saw how, how messed up the nations were. He saw how afflicted you are. He saw how afflicted our lives are. And he says, I long to satisfy him with salvation. I'm going to feed the ones who can't feed themselves. I'm going to care for the ones who are beat up and bashed down. I know what that was like. I experienced it far worse than any of them ever did. I believe this is the joy that he had in his mind as he is suffering at the cross. In many ways, this is, he starts thinking about how to lead people in worship. I'm not going to go into great detail, but this is beautiful enough that i got to mention it, okay? So my apologies, but this is incredible. He gives this progression of praise where he starts calling the nations to worship. First, Christ just worships. He says, before the brethren, I'll praise you. He says, I'm just going to, Father, I'm going to worship you. I will praise you. And then right after Christ worships, look what he does. He then calls others to worship. He says, to you who fear the Lord, praise him. He starts calling others in worship. After he worships. And then after that, and this is unique with Christ, is Christ himself calls other people to worship. He says, you who fear the Lord, sorry, I just said that one. You who fear the Lord, praise him. But then he says, from you, speaking to the Father, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. Think of this. Jesus was anticipating while leading God's people in worship and calling other people to worship God, he anticipated himself being praised and worshiped by God the Father and by the whole congregation. It's incredible. He knew that though he was mocked at that point, he would one day be honored and worshipped by the nations. And then in verse 26, then, then Christ, that others who are afflicted come to worship. He says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. It's like he starts with it all. He says, I'm the worship leader, and I'm, I'm going to worship God first off. And then I'm going to lead other people into worship. And then after that, he says, God himself is going to honor me. All the people are going to honor me. And the time's going to come where people are going to be talking about me. And all, I mean, I won't even be calling people to worship me. Other people will be calling them to worship me for me. It's like this multiplying of worship. And, and again, in, in view here are Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor, people who are present, people in the future who are not even born yet, would one day Feast and rejoice in God's goodness. So what I don't want to say to you is whatever pain you're facing, there is a good and glorious future that there is in Christ. And he has good plans. He really does. I don't care where you're at in this, but you might identify with one of these low points or high points more this morning. But recognize you can ride that wave to the future. You might be asking the question, where's God? But remember, you've got to, ask, you've got to say that next thing. He's holy and faithful. You might be saying, who am I? You might be saying, you know, God has cared for me since birth. You might be wondering, how in the world can God save? Or you might be saying loud and clear, I know God alone can save. Maybe right now you already see the good future that you've been anticipating and hoping for. You see God's, a little bit of God's plan for the future. But wherever you're at in this, there are some things we've got to grab hold of and believe about Jesus' sufferings. So here's a few things. I'm going to be brief on these some key principles about how Jesus overcame pain. One, one thing is that God is not shocked by how painful pain is for us. He's not shocked. In, in, instead of being surprised by ourselves, we need to learn to tell God about it. He understands your pain. 
Others may not, but he does. Just tell him. Trust him. He totally understands even when others don't. Another principle is that knowing who God is and who you are is central to enduring suffering and hardship. Reflect on who you are in light of God. I mean, both these questions were big in Jesus' mind. Where is God? And who am I? And you have to. Hardship makes you ask the big questions, and you need to know those things. Center in on what God has revealed to make it through hardships. Another important principle is that there is no need to skip the pain or the sorrow that allows you to rightly put your hope where it won't be disappointed. So one of the reasons that God, sometimes God allows pain to come into our lives so we can put our hope where it actually can rest firmly instead of the wrong things. Sometimes the greatest trials are just there to get us to hope rightly. We hope in so many things that are stupid to hope for instead of hoping in God. One of the things we learn from Christ also is that, that we have to live with power in weakness, not power and or weakness. By that I mean this. Some of us want to be powerful. And some of us feel really powerful. And some of us feel very weak and small. One of the realities of the Christian life is that if you're going to have the real power that we need, is it's going to be power in weakness. It's going to be a both and thing, not an either or thing. To learn to trust God and not yourself. My friends, every one of us are incredibly weak, and we are far more sinful than we want to admit to other people. And if you can't begin to find power in confessing how weak you are, how much you struggle, then you're going to struggle to find power in the Christian life. There's this great quote that I just heard last night at the Saturday night service at Southwest Hills, and i got to share it with you. Charles Spurgeon He was preaching, and he said this, and maybe you feel this way about yourself. He said, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for for you are worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) So true. Any bad thought anyone has ever had of this church of me, if only you knew. (laughs) And then he goes on. He says, if someone falsely charges you at some point, Be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might have a more accurate accusation. He says, if you have your moral portrait painted and it's ugly, be satisfied. For if it only needs a few blacker spots, and then it will be nearer to the truth. The reality is we are all incredibly weak and incredibly sinful. And we have to learn to boast in our weakness, confess our sin, and to make much of the power of God. Because Christ himself, as he was looking forward to the future that God had promised, he, there was the, one of the hardest things, but one of the best things that he did was he had his mind on that future. And so he was able to endure incredible hardship. Praise God for Jesus. We got everything to learn from him. Every one of us do. Let's pray in his name. Lord, you know... You know us. You know me. You know all of our struggles. Some of us, as we're asking, where is God? Thank you, you God, are near, even when you seem to be far off. For those of us who are asking questions of who am I, Lord, help us to not just say, wretched man that I am, or I feel like a worm and not a man. Help us to say, we're your beloved children by faith in Christ who loved us and suffered for us. Lord, if we're feeling overwhelmed this morning, we're wondering, how in the world can I be saved in this scenario? I'm weak. My enemies are so strong. Help us to say loud and clear, I trust you. You know how to save. 
You, would you help me even one day to lead others in worship as I come through this trial? Help us, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you, you, point, you paint a path for us to follow. And you, Jesus, get us out of the chaos into a place of peace. Lord, thank you that you love to take pain, even the pain of labor and struggle, and you love to bring new life. Would you do that at the Gathering Church? Would you do that in my life? Would you do that in our lives? Bless this church. I praise you for the wonderful leadership team here. I pray for grace, for humility, for wisdom for the future. Jesus Christ, we trust you to make clear what you desire. We love you and pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.